This episode of Onward to Victory is proudly presented by WCScreens.com. Just like Rockney, Gip, Montana, and all your favorite fighting Irish heroes, WCScreens.com is the gold standard of the industry. For screen printing and embroidery, look no further than our friends at WCScreens.com. And on with the show. Happy third anniversary to Onward to Victory. If the show were a human being, we'd probably be out of diapers now. Pretty wild. Anyway, for this anniversary special, why not talk about something cataclysmic? You ever hear of the Great Fire of 1879? The on-campus disaster practically brought the University of Notre Dame to its collective knees in April of that year. Yeah, it's true. But, like the phoenix arose from the ashes... Sheer resolve, grit, tenacity, maybe just some luck of the fighting Irish saw the school rise again. And they got perhaps the most recognizable campus landmark out of the ordeal as well. And you thought Notre Dame founder Father Edward Sword couldn't get any cooler, I bet. But just wait. Got your attention? Well, let's get into it and buckle up those chin straps, Irish fans. This is Onward to Victory. Hello, Irish fans, and welcome to Onward to Victory, a Notre Dame football podcast. My name is Alex Painter, and welcome to the show. Man, wherever you're listening from, please know that I am very grateful, and I am always grateful, but today even more so, as this episode ceremoniously marks the show's third anniversary. Who would have thought? There's even a literal handful of you, not many more, but probably about a handful that have been around since the very, very beginning. So I humbly thank everyone who listens to the show and has played a role in its continued and prolonged success. We're three years in, this is episode number 63, and it's a fun one. And you know, I try to make the anniversary specials just a little bit more intriguing if possible. So for instance, the first anniversary special was spent at Augie's locker room, propped up on a stool, talking to Jeff Harrell, who is the author of Rockney of Ages. So that's where Jeff and I's relationship really bloomed, and that has been an awesome experience and a good friendship. And last year around this time, I did a special on Rockney, Texas. So that small town, that small Texas town that took Rockney's last name shortly after his untimely death, and just a really cool story to go with that. And so Thus, I bring you now today the third anniversary special, and I hope you really, really enjoy this one. It was a joy to put together, but I will also remind you that as I sit here and record this right now, we are just a mere 90 days from the kickoff of the 2022 football season. But however, before I get into the episode, let me remind you that if you haven't already, you need to purchase an Onward to Victory t-shirt designed by our very good friends at wcscreens.com. So feel free to jump over to paypal.me slash onward to victory, 
leave your size and address and I will get you in the next shirt order. And if you've already ordered one, please take a picture of yourself wearing it and share it here with the audience or send it into onward to victory podcast at gmail.com and I'll share it out with the audience. They're just really, really cool. And I appreciate our pals at wcscreens.com for taking care of us. And I'd also like to thank the show's consensus All-Americans who support the show with their monetary donations as well. So these kind folks include Michael Finan of Rutherford, New Jersey, Brad Glazier of Williamsburg, Indiana, Will Fuller of Warren, Ohio, and again, new to the muster role of the consensus All-Americans is Dr. Jeremy Scarlett of Whitefish Bay, Wisconsin. If you'd like to get your name called out as a consensus All-American too, well, it's really easy. Feel free to visit the virtual tip jars, if you will, and those are found at paypal.me slash onward to victory for a one-time donation or patreon.com slash onward to victory podcast for ongoing monthly support. So for the last episode, I brought in my pal and sometimes co-host Matt Gehring, and we talked a ton. And I mean it, it was actually the longest episode in show history about Manti Teo, the undefeated 2012 regular season, his march to nearly winning the Heisman Trophy, and, of course, the subsequent and very bizarre girlfriend hoax. This was intended to be a 10-year anniversary, after all, but first of all, it seems like a lot of you have listened already, judging by the numbers anyway, I am very thankful for that, just know that, and a ton of work went into it, so I'm actually doubly thankful for that, and I will say, though, even 10 years out, it still seems that folks, because I guess of the way the season ended against Alabama, which undoubtedly was a stinker, they can't fully wrap their heads around just how important that season was, and people can't, or maybe won't, get over the hoax. And I used the term legendary in the episode title, as in celebrating the 10-year anniversary of Manti Teo in the legendary 2012 season, but this caused a bit of division, and even derision. Many, many comments were positive about the season and Manti, but boy, there was still a ton of negativity as well, and these are coming from Notre Dame fans, at least self-identified Notre Dame fans, and I'm fine with either, by the way. Everyone doesn't have to agree with me, but I will speak my piece here. So to cover the first point, yes, I don't care what anyone says. It was absolutely a legendary season. It was their first undefeated regular season in a quarter of a century. And this was also the last time the team managed to bank 12 wins in a season. So if you look at the Notre Dame football record from 1994 through 2011, if you take away the 10-3 and seasons in 2002 and 2006, the Irish record stood, again, over that long stretch, at 111 wins and 83 losses. They won 57% of their games. Hell, even if you include those two double-digit win seasons, again, 2002 and 2006, they still only won 59% of their games over a nearly two-decade stretch. So then enter 2012. Without fail, almost since then, Notre Dame has entered a period of relevance that they have not seen in a long time. They've won more football games in this period over any other in Notre Dame history. And regardless of whether the quote-unquote big one was won, they are so, so far from being mired in mediocrity, which is exactly where they were 
for almost 20 years. So when we crack open our Notre Dame football history books in the decades to come, I guarantee you that historians, writers, pundits, whatever, will point to 2012 and be like, that's where this new era started with Kelly and now, of course, now in the Marcus Freeman. But as it is with a lot of history, we are still like firmly entrenched in it and we are probably still too close to it on a day-to-day basis to really fully grasp it. Happens all the time in history. It's all good. But I will say after doing a deep dive into those games in 2012, there is just no way that the previous regimes or in the previous seasons, they would have won. They would have won these games. They won five of the games by a single possession. Manti, you know, if you boil his Notre Dame career down to a girlfriend hoax and a lackluster national championship performance, I kind of do feel bad for you. He was a brilliant college football player. And I tried to stress just how rare it was for a defensive player at that point, and of course still today, to be in the top two of Heisman voting. Are you ready for the entire list? Well, in 2012, Manti finished second place. Before him, Charles Woodson finished first place. In 1980, Hugh Green, second place. In 1957, Alex Karras, who you may better know as Mongo from the movie Blazing Saddles, second place. And that's the list. Four. Between 1935 and 2012, there are four. There were four defensive players who finished in the top two in the Heisman voting. And even if you add Michigan's Aiden Hutchinson, who finished runner-up this past year, again, five guys in nearly nine decades. So legendary? (laughs) You bet. And uh, venture to say, yes, I will die on that hill. But then there was the elephant in the room which is the girlfriend hoax. And honestly, if you go back and listen to it, we tried to tackle it with as much of a human element as we could. Yeah, and I mean, it's an odd and even uncomfortable thing to talk about. But it's also pervasive, and I am sure that there are people listening to this right now who have been involved in a catfishing situation, whether or not they are aware of it. It's uncomfortable to feel duped, and you're obviously not alone there, but Friend of the show, Mr. Will Fuller, wrote me the following after listening to the episode, quote, I thought you and Matt did a great job telling the sad story of Manti and the catfishing scandal. You laid out the story well, and while giving props to his athletic abilities, his solid family background, and Notre Dame's quest for a national championship. He even shared that, quote, At the time, I had my doubts about Manti's credibility, but that he was actually swayed by the episode. So thank you, as always, for the nice note there, Will. So anyways, go back and give that episode a listen, because it was really kind of groundbreaking, I thought. And even if you're not there for the Manti catfishing stuff, there are plenty of bits about the 2012 team. And again, I do think it was pretty cool that we were able to get in kind of on the ground level of celebrating that particular team and all of those awesome games. And again, Manti's March to the Heisman Trophy runner-up and in kind of a 10-year anniversary. So anyway, on to the topic at hand, the Great Fire of 1879. I got to tell you all, this was actually originally going to be an episode about the Basilica of the Sacred Heart, 
but bear with me. As I was doing research on that, I kind of ran into this, and here we are. And this really big fire just seemed like a little bit more of a sexy topic to cover for an anniversary special. Not that we all don't love the Basilica. It's coming. It's coming this offseason. That episode is, I promise you. But I decided this one might be a little splashier here for the people. Let's start at the beginning, as we like to do. The University of Notre Dame was founded in 1842 by Father Edward Soren, who, contrary to what people may deduce, was not actually Irish. He was French. But he had traversed across the country in one of the coldest winters on record, mind you, until he got to South Bend, Indiana. Upon reaching what would eventually become campus, he called the university Notre Dame du Lac, or Our Lady of the Lake, in reference to the picturesque bodies of water near campus. So the first decade or so of the college were fraught with financial difficulty or financial instability, and the school didn't really achieve that strong sense of financial security for several decades. They built slowly. They kind of had to. And by the 1878-1879 school year, there were approximately 500 students at the university. Really not too shabby. But the campus at that point featured a six-story main building in the approximate location of the current main building you might know as the Golden Dome. And in 1870, ground was broken on the Sacred Heart Church. So that stood, of course, right next to the main building. And there were other various smaller buildings around campus as well. But if you were to look at the campus map from that particular year, one can distinguish about, let's say, 10 or 12 buildings. So, of course, today, there are about 175. So we are talking about a much smaller campus. This was just 40 years after the school was established. It was very much a slow march. But there was little doubt that the main building was the feature of campus. It was set about six stories high with a raised pitch roof and a dome. And then affixed to the top of the dome was a statue of Mary. Some of this actually may sound kind of familiar. But the building was completed in 1865, so just a few years before ground was broken on the church. Now, I am not an architect by any stretch of the imagination. In fact, I probably have a better chance of being Santa Claus before an architect, so you'll have to forgive me here with this crude description. But if you're to look up a picture of the first main building, actually, technically, it was the second main building. The second main building was kind of akin to a modern-day shoebox with small outcroppings on each side. Then again, there was a rotunda on top with Mary's statue. And most every facet of campus found a home in the school's main building. Most of the educational classrooms were there, as were student and faculty living quarters on the first couple floors. But by this time, Father Soren had stepped down from the presidency and into a semi-retired role. Though not for nothing, he was actively still involved as president of the Board of Trustees just not the day-to-day operations of the university itself. And if you're kind of curious, like, what does this board of trustees actually do on any college or university across the country? Well, the college or university president actually reports to the board of trustees, and the board of trustees is kind of who is tasked with overseeing the school or university's overarching priorities, strategy, policies, 
and all that. Not to mention there's a huge fundraising component to being a trustee. You know, you have to donate a certain amount of money to the, the college or university every single year, as well as you're kind of expected to go out and help fundraise from some of the big ticket donors as well. So regardless of whether or not Father Soren was the president of the university at the time, he still wielded a lot of power on that campus. So anyway, if you're like, well, if it's not Soren, then who was it? Who was the president of the campus? Well, prepare to go full circle. The president of the University of Notre Dame at this time was Father William Corby. Now, that name ought to ring all kinds of bells. For uh, he was, of course, the chaplain of the famous Irish Brigade during the American Civil War. And there was also a very famous statue of him on campus, best known as Fair Catch Corby, which, of course, stands right in front of Corby Hall. So Father Corby is president. But just what were the Notre Dame men graduating from the university become at this time? Well, I found this kind of interesting. This is from the school's history written by Arthur J. Hope. So in 1880, right around the time we're talking, the school had been in existence for just under four decades. And quote, of the young men who have graduated in the classical and scientific courses at Notre Dame, about 18% are priests, 27% are lawyers, 8% are educators, 6% are physicians, 3% are editors, 7% are engineers, 4% are farmers, and 10% are businessmen. When graduated, four-fifths, 80%, of the whole number were Catholics, and about one-fifth Protestants, end quote. So I thought that was pretty interesting. Uh, nearly half of Notre Dame grads at this time became lawyers or priests. thought that was worth sharing. So here we go. In mid-April 1879, Father Soren, at this time 65 years old and someone who still resided on campus, had just left for an extended excursion to Montreal and New York. He made a quick declaration before leaving about just how much he actually didn't enjoy these kinds of trips. But fast forwarding to approximately 10 p.m. on Tuesday, April 22, 1879, the main building had been experiencing some pretty substantial renovations and several workers who had been working on the roof finished up and walked out and locked the door behind them. And by all accounts, there was nothing out of the ordinary and the workers returned home. Wednesday, April 23rd, the morning was beautiful. A slight spring-like breeze blew over the campus lakes. Now at this time, the college students didn't actually have class on Wednesdays. So many were undoubtedly taking the opportunity to sleep in or lounge around their residence halls or go visit the town of South Bend, whatever it was. But at about 11 a.m. that morning, the Minims, or those who were actually attending grammar school at Notre Dame, so the 12 and under boys, were outside playing in their courtyard when they spotted a plume of smoke emerging from the campus's main building. Within seconds, the calmness of an otherwise picturesque spring day was interrupted with hollers of, Fire! Fire! The college is on fire! Truthfully, when the Minims spotted the fire, it could have easily been contained and possibly even extinguished quickly. But the issue was, well, none of the buckets that had been strategically placed around the building had any water in them. You ever hear the expression that fire is man's oldest ally but also his oldest enemy? 
Well, at this time, fire posed a much larger threat than, say, it does now. And so, especially with larger buildings, there were many safeguards in place, including these buckets that were kind of sporadically yet very strategically placed. The only issue was, again, on this particular day, there was no water in them. But uh, as I mentioned, there were a number of students who lived in the building. So all of a sudden, people are trying to run outside to ascertain the situation. And it caused major clustering around the entrances and exits. So in the confusion, the sheer confusion, 10 or 15 precious minutes were lost. And by this time, the blaze had spread across nearly the entire pitched roof. So the students and faculty finally caught their bearings and began to form a long bucket brigade line. Soon they received some reinforcements as well as some of the South Bend townspeople seeing the smoke had sprinted or rode horses over to campus to help. There was another somewhat obvious issue here, and that's the fact that the building was six floors. So that's one hell of a bucket brigade. But one group of people ran to the water tanks to start pumping water. Again, this was a safeguard just in case the building caught on fire. But that too was quickly overwhelmed and they ran out of water as well. So the fire continued to spread throughout the upper floors. At this point, you know, it's, it's not looking good. Some people just broke off the bucket brigade and began running into the classrooms and they just started flinging stuff. Books, microscopes, glass beakers, globes, maps, musical instruments, historical artifacts, vital school records, out of the windows. So you have a fire that's actively burning. Some people are trying to put it out, but others are still furiously sprinting around the building trying to save what they could. So you had all that stuff raining down onto the grass of the main quad as well. And to illustrate this, a young student, a gentleman named Harry Kitts, according to Arthur Hope's history, was, quote, rushing out of the burning building, happy in the thought that he had saved a few books. He must have been filled with unspeakable terror as he felt himself crushed and stretched on the ground. Surprised, he surely must have been at his own strength in casting off what he thought, mistakenly, was a falling wall, but which proved to be only a mattress thrown from the fourth floor, end quote. So add mattresses to that long list of things that were flying out the windows from earlier. But another gentleman named P.J. Doherty, another student, actually fell out of a third floor window. And miraculously, he not only survived, but he actually recovered over the span of just a few days. But soon, the wooden supports of the dome began to give way which sent the dome collapsing and then sent that 2,000-pound statue of Mary hurtling through the center of the building, just crushing through each floor. And by the grace of God, that statue didn't crush anyone, again, as it fell six stories right through the middle of the building. And right after that statue fell, I think everybody looked at each other and said, it's time to get out. So shortly after, then the building was finally evacuated. That spring breeze that I was talking about actually started becoming a wind, and it was blowing from the west. And that west wind spread the fire from the main building, and it actually ended up destroying the infirmary, the St. Francis Old Men's House, the music hall, the Minims hall, 
and other smaller structures. But think of it this way. Had the wind been blowing from east to west, the Basilica of the Sacred Heart, then known as the Sacred Heart Church, would have undoubtedly taken substantial damage. And it's quite sobering in that situation to think, what if? What if that church would have caught on fire? This would be an incredibly different episode. And honestly, in the short and long term, who knows what the school or how the school would have been able to deal with that. But after three hours, the blaze was finally under control. But I can't stress this enough. The place was an absolute mess. About half of the buildings had been affected by the fire, including the largest and most important building to campus. So make no mistake, this was an absolute calamity. This is according to the school newspaper, quote, At about 3 o'clock that afternoon, Father Corby summoned some of the wiser heads to consult about what should be done. It was determined to close the school immediately. Accordingly, the students were called to the church, which had fortunately escaped the conflagration. The president explained to them that telegrams would be sent forthwith to their parents explaining the situation. They would all have to go home. But he promised them that by September, they would be able to return to a bigger and better Notre Dame. End quote. Now, did Father Corby believe his own sentiment here? He may have, but it's also possible that he didn't. Especially once the receipts started rolling in, the damage would be over $200,000. The university's insurance policies would only cover 45000 of it. Now, to the credit of the humility of the campus community, one of the major talking points in the days following the fire was just what would this do with campus, most of it anyway, laying smoldering or in ruin, but what would this do to the mental and physical health of the school's founder, Father Soren, when he returned to campus? And Father Soren was actually in Montreal when he heard the news, and he was just about ready actually to make his 36th transatlantic trip. But after he read the telegram of the news of campus, he turned around and went straight for South Bend. And would you believe it? He actually arrived four days after the fire. So that Sunday morning, thousands of students, faculty, again, this is the very first Sunday after the fire. So students, faculty, and townspeople packed the Sacred Harp Church to hear Soren speak for the first time after the disaster. So next time you're in the Basilica, think about this moment. Something that one of the Notre Dame professors said later named Timothy Howard, he said that when Father Soren spoke, they were, quote, some of the most sublime words I have ever listened to, end quote. So what did Father Soren say? What happened? Find out right after this. Father Soren arrived in South Bend on April 27th, four days after the blaze. He was greeted by a grief-stricken and devastated campus community. So he surveyed campus, and he found that the reports he received were in fact true. The main building had been absolutely gutted by the fire, 
which of course affected a number of other structures as well. Soon, he had a large crowd of community members kind of following him around as he walked and inspected the grounds of the campus. And those folks later observed that Soren didn't slump as he walked around the physical ruins of much of his life's work. No, actually, his body stiffened. He stood taller, kept his chin high. The 65-year-old began quickening his pace like there were springs in his shoes among the smoking bricks and smoldering wood of the former main building. He stopped, turned to the crowd, and signaled for everyone to quickly get inside the church. So everyone took a seat, and Father Soren stood on the steps of the altar, and he made the following pronouncement, quote, If it were all gone, I should not give up. I came here as a young man and dreamed of building a university, a great university, in honor of Our Lady. But I built it too small, and she had to burn it to the ground to make the point. So tomorrow, as soon as the bricks cool, we will rebuild it, bigger and better than ever. End quote. The once somber crowd had actually whipped itself up into a frenzy. One of the priests in the room later wrote that, quote, the effect was electric. It was the crowning moment of his, Father Soren's, life. A sad company had gone into church that day. They were all simple Christian heroes as they came out. There was never more of a shadow of a doubt as to the future of Notre Dame, end quote. And that future was no longer in doubt, as he promised. Students soon found Father Soren himself pushing wheelbarrows full of smoking bricks. The rebuild had begun. And believe it or not, the campus actually was still smoldering and smoking three weeks later. But much of the ruin had been removed. And support flooded in from alumni across the country for the new building. The women at St. Mary's College across the street held a concert and gala in South Bend to benefit the project. Current students and faculty held their own fundraising drives to help. Father Soren noted to one of the sisters at St. Mary's, quote, Our catastrophe, so sudden and so unexpected and so terrible, has been seen as a loss to the whole country, and the American people have marvelously helped us to reverse it, end quote. So on May 4th, 1879, this is just a couple weeks later. Why would Father Soren make such a bold move when in reality he didn't even know what the architectural style was going to be for the new building? But I'm sure he wanted to make sure the project was moving and realize that such a gesture would keep momentum flowing positively. But soon hundreds of workers converged on campus and construction began. 16-hour days. More than 4.3 million bricks were laid in the coming months. And wouldn't you know it, Notre Dame was ready for the fall semester come September. So think about it. That entire building was nearly completed in four months' time. And of course, it was no longer the shape of the old main building. Yeah, the one I refer to as a shoebox, but it had a beautiful, modern, gothic look and feel. One that you can kind of walk around today and see all the different quirks and nuances to the structure and its design. But yeah, those bricklayers, they were incredible. And I'm sure our pal Brad Glazier, a bricklayer himself and a huge supporter of the show, is probably pumping his fists right now. 4.3 million bricks in just a few months' time, that is pretty good. 
But the dome itself actually wasn't finished until 1882, so just a few years later. But when was the dome first gilded in gold? A very common question. So this is pulled from the University of Notre Dame's website, and clearly Father Soren had one more gambit to play. The Statue of Mary, which would eventually be atop the Golden Dome, weighs 4,400 pounds and stands 18 feet 7 inches tall. And it was paid for by donations from the nuns, student, and alumni at St. Mary's College. But it arrived on campus in July 1880 to replace that statue again that was destroyed in the fire that fell right through the middle of the building. So the cast iron statue sat on the rebuilt front porch of the new main building for two years while the new dome was completed. Now think of it that way. Again, 18 feet. Well, 18 feet plus. And that's just kind of sitting out on the front porch. Not very unassuming, but probably pretty cool, honestly. But the $1 million rebuilding project had left the university in debt. But regardless, Father Soren wanted that dome atop of the main building to be gilded in gold. However, this was not an expense that the committee kind of overseeing the construction was willing to incur since the financial burden of the project, the new main building, was a $1 million project. So that standoff actually lasted until 1886 when Father Soren employed a procedural trick. He used his position as Superior General of Notre Dame to name himself to that committee, and then he asked to be the chairman. So again, this is the committee that refused the gilding, but he then refused to come to the meetings. And so as chairman, the meetings couldn't happen uh, without him there. So again, without him there, they legally could not actually conduct any business. So once everything kind of went to a standstill, the committee then relented and gave Father Soren his golden dome and the statue was then affixed to the top of the rotunda. So then, alas, the Golden Dome in the main administration building was as we recognize it today. But another tidbit that I found that I thought you might find interesting was that the first gilding of the dome cost $2,000, while back in 2005, the 10th gilding of the dome actually cost $300,000. However, as the school website points out, quote, the stubborn founder had an innate genius for marketing, as the Golden Dome has become Notre Dame's most recognizable symbol, end quote. So there you have it. How again, on the heels of the worst disaster in school history, became one of its greatest victories. Not bad, huh? Well, I hope you appreciate this episode number 63, which celebrates again three years of Onward to Victory, a Notre Dame football podcast. I will just say once again that if you want to support the show, please feel free to continue to listen, share it with people who may enjoy it, and if your heart desires, again, visit paypal.me slash onward to victory and pick up a t-shirt. Just simply leave your size and address and I'll get you one as soon as possible. And then after you receive your t-shirt, snap a picture of yourself, share it with the people. And let's continue to get the word about this podcast out. So again, thank you to wcscreens.com for the t-shirts. Paypal.me slash onward to victory. Leave your size and address. We'll get you a t-shirt as soon as possible. Or if you just want to drop a monetary donation and become a consensus All-American, visit there as well. So thank you all. Three years in, man. Talk about crazy. And I couldn't be happier personally. This podcast and me being able to meet everybody who listens to it and 
who find it enjoyable and profound even, has brought me so much closer to my favorite college football team. And for that, I am incredibly thankful that I get to continue to do this and continue to reach a lot of people who are interested in this kind of show, which is part college game day, part history channel, and part ESPN classic. I don't know how else to uh, describe it, but I'd like to thank you all once again for joining this ride. And with that, I better sign off until next time. Hey, this has been Onward to Victory, a Notre Dame football podcast. And in kindness, I am your host, Alex Painter. And as always, go Irish.